Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Some of you may be able to follow along on your phone or your portable device as well. 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. You know, when you think about Americans, and you think about all the technology that we have here in our culture, the lifespan of Americans has dramatically increased over the past 120 years. I want somebody to, to guess what the average lifespan for a woman was in the year 1900. Anybody want to guess 1900? What's the average lifespan for a woman? 24. No, that wasn't that low. It's 47. Okay. Who wants to guess for men in 1900? I'm sorry. It was 49 for women. It's 47 for men. 12% of those born in 1900 would live past 65 years old. Now, the average lifespan today for women is 81, and for men is 76, but we always know there's exceptions to that. It's just the average. But here's the thing. We live in a world with medical advances, nutrition, all types of scientific discoveries where we really want to extend life. And the downside to this is that when we talk about death and dying, Americans get pretty uncomfortable with that topic. Think about the language that we've changed when it comes to even things like funerals. Today we call them celebrations of life. Now there's nothing necessarily wrong with calling a funeral a celebration of life, but what we've done is we've, we, we don't want to face the reality of death. Our culture fantasizes about immortality. Think about all the movies that have come out with immortality as the theme. We have anti-aging creams. We have people that want to download their brains into computers so that they continue to live virtually after they've died. That's a little strange. We have cryonics. Cryonics is where you freeze and store body parts in hopes that somewhere down the road, a scientist will discover your body and be able to revive you and bring you back to life with your frozen body being intact. Because of all the medical advances that we have as Americans, all the technology, the lifespan has increased, we view death in America as a failure, something to avoid at all costs. We don't see death as something that's supposed to happen. We look at it as something that's not supposed to happen. I'm not supposed to die. I'm supposed to continue to live and live. It's a natural part of life to think about death and dying. Now you think, I came here on Easter. Why is it so morbid? Why is he talking about death and dying right out the bat? Well, I want to tell you this morning that Easter is a time for joy, a time for hope, a time for expectation, and we find that Jesus has conquered death in his resurrection. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, and as we read this passage together, 
we're just going to ask three questions of this passage together. So let's join together and hear the words of Paul from 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. He's writing to his young protege, Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, or as some translations would say, what I have entrusted to him. I prefer the second translation better than the first, what I've entrusted to him. So let's ask three questions this morning that will help us understand the resurrection. Why do we not have to fear death? Why does the empty tomb count? Why are we even here on Easter Sunday? What does this passage of Scripture tell us about this hope? So here's the first question. What exactly is the gospel? We hear the word gospel all the time. Notice what Paul says in verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. He uses the word testimony. He uses the word gospel. What, what is the gospel? What's this testimony that he's talking about? Well, the word gospel itself simply means good news. It is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 7. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered as to you of first importance what I received from Christ. What's this first importance that Paul received? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. The gospel is simply the testimony or the good news of the death burial and resurrection of Jesus. Now, you may have come into this place this morning and you may think, you know, this whole resurrection business kind of sometimes sounds like a fairy tale. Now, you may not vocalize that out loud, but maybe in your heart of hearts you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure if I buy the empty tomb. I'm not sure if I buy the fact that Jesus literally rose from the dead. You know, there have been a lot of different theories about what happened to Jesus. Now, I call these theories because none of these are true, but these are theories that people have tried to promote over the years to, tie, to try to discount what happened on Easter Sunday morning. The first theory is what we call the falsehood theory. 
the falsehood theory. This is the idea that the disciples, who were so brave, went and snuck past the Roman guards who were stationed there that would lose their life if they let anybody get into the tomb. They stole Jesus' body, and they went around and made up a story that Jesus rose from the grave. They just made the whole thing up. But here's the point with that. Why in the world would every single one of the apostles die a martyr's death for something they made up? Do you know how the disciples died? Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. Philip was scourged, beaten, and crucified. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who wrote the book of James, was beaten, stoned, and bludgeoned to death with a bat. Andrew, the brother of Peter, was crucified. Mark was dragged to death. Jude was crucified. Thomas was killed by being speared to death. And Luke was hanged on an olive tree. All for something they just made up. Would you go to that great lengths to make up a story to simply die a martyr's death for it. Number two theory is what we call the swoon theory. Jesus didn't really die. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They, they put a spear in his side. They, they put nails in his hands and feet. And, and, and actually, when they put him in the tomb, he just kind of fainted a little bit. Didn't really die. So after about three days in there with no food and water, he rolls the boulder apart and he comes walking out on Pierce's feet, basically having been in there kind of just fainting. That's an interesting theory. Theory number three, the vision or delusion theory. The disciples were so excited about Jesus that they hallucinated the fact that he rose again. Not that they made it up, they just hallucinated the fact. They were so much caught up in euphoria that they just hallucinated the fact that Jesus had come back. Now, I could go into all types of proof for you this morning. But notice what Paul says here. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. The resurrection is one of the most verifiable historical events, according to antiquity, that we have. It is the truth. And here's what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. The empty tomb. Do you know that you can go to the city of Medina in Saudi Arabia today and you can see the mosque of Muhammad's tomb? Muhammad never rose from the dead. Siddhartha Gautama, who's the founder of Buddhism, his remains are cremated in relics all throughout the Far East. He never rose from the grave. Confucius, the ancient Chinese philosopher, was buried in China, and you can go visit his grave. He never rose from the tomb. Christianity is the only belief system where Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, who cares? Doesn't mean anything. Our faith is useless. It's in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your 
sins. So if Jesus hadn't raised from the grave, our faith is done. We're still in our sins. It makes no sense. Christianity is over. And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, our faith is useless, we're still in our sins, and we're the most pitied of all people to be. Because we're basically believing a lie that makes no difference in our lives whatsoever. So what is the gospel that Paul says here in verse 8? I'm not ashamed of it. It's the testimony. It's the gospel. What is it? It's the historic reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as an historical fact of History, the greatest news that we could ever hear, the greatest news we could ever share, the empty tomb. Let's ask the second question. It's an interesting question. Why would you be ashamed of the gospel? Why would you be ashamed of the gospel? Paul says it twice in verse 8. He says, do not be ashamed. He tells Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord And then in verse 12, he says, I'm not ashamed. In Romans 1.16, Paul says it this way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Why would people be embarrassed about the gospel? Why would people be ashamed about Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb? Why would people be ashamed of this message? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says the word of the cross is folly. In original language, that word's moronic. The, the message of the cross is moronic. It's offensive to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The message of the cross is foolish to people. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews And folly, moronic to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why in the world is the message of the cross and the resurrection moronically offensive and foolish to people and you want to be ashamed of it? Why would you be ashamed of this message? Here's the answer. The gospel offends and the gospel is foolish because it cuts right to the heart of human pride and self-sufficiency. The gospel says to us that we are hopeless, we are helpless, and we are hell-bound in our sin, and we need salvation. That we stand separated from a holy God and we need to be rescued. That we have sin in our life that needs to be paid for. That we need to be forgiven. That that we can't earn God's acceptance through our good works. Here's the stark reality. Most people don't think they're that bad. Most people don't think they've offended a holy God who is the creator of the universe. They think maybe God just overlooked my sins. Maybe all God really cares about is my heart. Maybe all God cares about is how I treat people. 
Maybe all God cares about is I, I go to church and I'm, I'm nice and I'm kind and I, I try to obey the golden rule and maybe I'm spiritual from time to time. That's what God really cares about is he just looks at my intentions. And I'm not as bad as those other people. I mean, there's really, really bad people out there. I mean, I can, I can name people like Hitler that are really bad or, or Kim Jong-un of North Korea. There's, there's people that are really, really, really bad, but that's not me. I'm not that bad. At the end of the day, God's just going to kind of give me a free pass. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. Who saved us? You see, here's what the cross tells us and the empty tomb tells us. You and I desperately need to be saved. Now, saved from what, you may ask? What do I need to be saved from? Saved from your personal rebellion against God? Saved from your personal sin against your Creator? Saved from your rebellion against Jesus? You see, if you're to stand on that final day, we talk about Jesus coming back on that glorious day. When he comes back on that glorious day and you, and you stand before him on that day, and you don't have your sins paid for, it's not going to be a pretty picture. Psalm 130 verse 3 says this, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? If God kept a record of your sins, who could stand? And what's the answer? Nobody. Now let's just play a little game here, okay? Let's pretend like I got access to an app that was able to download from this past week all of your actions, and I put them up on the screen for everybody to see. How many here want to run for the hills? <laughs> Just your actions. Okay, now the app takes it a, a step further. All your thoughts are projected up on the screen for everybody to see. Okay. Think about your thoughts, your words, your deeds, everything you do. If God kept a record of all those things, who could stand? And the answer is nobody could stand. So we need to be saved. And that's what Paul says there in verse 9. He tells us the nature of this grace. God saved us. God called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God gave us grace. You can't give yourself grace. You can't earn this grace. You can't produce this grace. You can't work for this grace. God's got to give you the grace. He's got to give it to you as a free gift. So here's the thing about salvation. It takes you out of the driver's seat. You are totally out of the driver's seat when it comes to salvation because you can't do it. Only God can save you. Titus 3, 4-5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. God must 
save you by grace. And it also says there, God must call you to himself. God's got to save you. God's got to call you. God's got to do this work in your life to bring you to himself. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. Only God can do that. That's why 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14 says, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this, this salvation, He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. Here's the point. You can't save yourself, can't call yourself, can't give grace to yourself. You can't do enough. And Paul even says it there. Notice what he says there in verse 8. Not because of our own works. God does not save you. God does not rescue you. God does not call you because of something you did by your good works. He must do it by his own purpose. You can't do good enough. You can't produce enough. You can't obtain enough. You can't achieve enough good in order to earn a right standing with God. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we who have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because of the works of the law, no one will be justified. You can't do anything good to earn approval before God. Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace... You've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's why people are ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel says you can't save yourself. You are hopeless. You are helpless. You are hellbound. You are condemned. You can't do anything to save yourself. You have to cast yourself solely at the mercy of God to give you the free grace to be saved. And people like to be in the driver's seat and they like to admit that they're in charge and they don't want to face the fact that they stand sinful before a holy God. That's why people are ashamed of the gospel because it's by grace that you're saved. But notice in verse 10, we see some powerful results of the empty tomb. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. Which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came in the flesh, when he was born of a virgin, when he lived a perfect life, when he died on the cross, when he he rose again, what did he do? Two things. Here's the first. Jesus abolished death. Now, we need to be very careful that we don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. doesn't mean that we won't ever die. Every single one of us will face physical death. Death is a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. Everybody's going to eventually die because the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So what's Paul saying here that Jesus abolished death? Here's the thing. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear death. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong 
slavery. How many people fear death? I wonder if you're here this morning and you fear death. It weighs upon you. You're not quite sure what it's all about. I know I'm going to die, but I'm just, I'm just fearful of that. As a pastor who's done a lot of funerals and memorial services and graveside services, I honestly do not know how anybody without Jesus can honestly face death. I don't know how anybody without Jesus can honestly face death. But here's the thing. Jesus abolished it. Death has lost its sting. Death has lost its power. Yes, we're going to face it as the final enemy, but it's not going to be our destiny. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 15-57. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the empty tomb, we also can have victory over death. We can face death, not fearfully, but we can face it as the final enemy knowing it has no hold on us. Death's been abolished. Death has been crushed. Paul says in Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you do not have to face condemnation. You do not have to face hell. You face life because of what Jesus did. So Jesus abolished death but notice, secondly, what Paul says there in verse 10. He brought life and immortality. Secondly, Jesus brought life and immortality. Now, you may say, what's the difference between life and immortality? Probably talking about the same thing. I take life to mean the regeneration that happens when you become a Christian. You get new life. You're a new person in Christ. I take immortality to be that final, eternal life. So life now you're living as a regenerated person with the Holy Spirit in you, and then life immortal, that future day when you will spend eternity in heaven. Listen to just the words of Jesus. John 5, 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. At the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus is dead. Jesus is about to raise him from the grave. And what does he say to Martha? John eleven twenty five through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's a great question. Do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If you believe in him, you will never die. Death's been abolished. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. What's eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now here's a, here's a good one. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. This is not the words of Jesus. It's the word of his apostle John. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Great question. Do you know that you have eternal life? John Stott, I love John Stott. He puts things in some interesting ways of, of thinking about things. He says this, he, he says, quote, The proper epitaph for a Christian believer is not a dismal and uncertain R.I.P., rest in peace. So, you know, you go to a, a grave site and, you know, what you see on people's graves, rest in peace, R.I.P. He said, that's not really what you should put on Christian gravestones. Instead, we should put C.A.D. You're like, what's C.A.D.? Christ abolished death. That should be on your tombstone. Not rest in peace, but Christ abolished death. So here's what we've seen so far. What is the gospel? First question. What's the gospel? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical reality to be believed. Second question. Why would anybody be ashamed of this gospel? Well, because it tells us that we're sinners and we need salvation and God has to do it all and we can't save ourselves and we can't clean ourselves up and we can't be spiritual enough and we can't go to church enough. God has to save us by his grace alone. But here's the third question and probably the most important for you this morning. Third question. How Will you respond to this good news? I want you to pay close attention to what Paul says in verse 12. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. Notice Paul doesn't say, I know what I've believed, but I know who I have believed. Let me just give you some information this morning. You're not saved by how much Bible knowledge you have. You may be here this morning and you know a lot of Bible. You know a lot of facts. You know a lot of figures. You know a lot of things about the Bible. That's not what Paul's saying here. That's important. Paul's not saying, I know what I believe. It's important to know what you believe. He says, I know who I have believed. It's a personal faith in Jesus. Notice also he doesn't say, he doesn't say, I know about what I believe. Or I know a lot about who I believe in. I know a lot about Jesus. I know he died on the cross. I know he rose again. I know he lived a perfect life. There's a lot that you can know about Jesus, but not know him personally. Let's say you're sick, and there's a specific medicine that will cure you. And you know it'll cure you because it's cured a bunch of other people. A bunch of medical tests, FDA approved, everything. And you go on the internet and you research the medicine. And you read about the medicine. And you Google the medicine. And you print out all the sheets about the medicine. You even go to your doctor, and your doctor prescribes you and writes you a medicine. You know a lot about that medicine, don't you? But do you know that medicine? What happens? It's not until you what? Take the medicine that you actually know the medicine more than just knowing about it. So here's the thing. You can know a lot about Jesus and not know Jesus. James 2.19 says this. 
you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you know Satan's a great theologian? He knows his Bible. The demons know the Bible. The demons know the history. The demons know theology. The demons know all about Jesus. But here's what this passage says. They know about it and they shudder. Why do they shudder? They've read Revelation. They know the end. They know they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. I wonder how many of us who are not demons know about God and we don't shudder. The demons know about God, and that's enough to make them shudder, but they don't personally know Jesus. Paul also doesn't say, I know whom I have believed, and it's in me. I believed in myself. That's very popular today. I believe in myself. Just be true to yourself. Look inside yourself. Never admit weakness. Just, Just believe in yourself. The question you've got to ask is, do you Know personally whom you have believed. Not about Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Think about in your house. You have a coat rack that you hang up coats, or maybe in your garage, man, you have nails or something where you hang up tools. If you hang something up, they can't stay up without hanging on that nail, right? They need that nail to hang themselves up. If not, they just fall off. When you come to faith in Christ, it's like this. You're banking your entire self on him to hold you up for eternity. You're putting all of your trust in him personally. You're saying, I'm banking everything upon Jesus Christ personally. It's not just knowing about him. I'm personally putting faith in him. So Paul says, I know whom I have believed. I have a personal relationship with this Christ. I don't just know about him. I just don't know things of him. I know him personally. And Paul takes it one step further. Notice what else he says there. And, second half there of verse 12, and I am convinced, thoroughly convinced, thoroughly persuaded, I am persuaded beyond any measure of doubt that God is able. God is powerful. Okay, he's thoroughly convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is powerful. Well, powerful to do what? Some translations don't translate this the best. The the actual wording there is deposit, to guard the deposit. The ESV says, what I've entrusted to him, the deposits. In the culture of that day, in that ancient culture, because there were not a lot of banks if you had a lot of property, you had a lot of um, possessions and things that you, that you wanted to keep safe, you couldn't put it in a safe deposit box, and you went on a long journey, you would have to entrust your valuables to somebody that you really trusted. If you're going to go off on a, on a 30-day, 40-day, maybe a year-long journey, you better make sure you give the stuff to somebody that you absolutely trust, because what are they going to do? If you don't trust them, they can steal from you. So that's the imagery here that that God that, that, that Paul is giving something to God to trust. Now, some of you may know basketball. Kevin Garnett um, is a retired basketball player now. He used to play, spent most of his career for the Minnesota Timberwolves, but won a championship with the Boston Celtics. At the time, he was the highest paid NBA basketball player. 
And he had an investment banker. He had a partner that um, was named Charles Banks. And Charles Banks, behind Kevin Garnett's back, stole $77 million from him. He trusted this guy to invest his money, and they were supposedly friends. But behind the scenes, this guy was bilking, was defrauding Kevin Garnett for $77 million. He also did it to, to, to Tim Duncan, who played for the San Antonio Spurs. And so in 2017, this man Banks was sentenced to four years in prison, had to pay back $7.5 million. I mean, this is a huge issue for pro athletes. You probably have heard horror stories where pro athletes have trusted their money to a friend, to a family member, and that person defrauded them. So it's this whole idea in that ancient culture that if, if you've got something valuable that you're going to trust, you better trust the person that you're going to give that to, that deposit. So what does Paul say here? Paul says, I am thoroughly convinced that God is able to guard the deposit that I've entrusted to him. Now we've got to ask the question, what did Paul entrust to God? His very life. His very life. Paul said, listen, not only do I know who I've personally put my faith in, but I'm going to take it one step further and say, I am absolutely confident that this God will keep me saved to the very end. I'm giving him my entire life, and he's able to guard me to the very end. I'm trusting him with my entire life until that day. What's that day? It's the day that Jesus comes back. Are you fully convinced? God's power to save you. What if your salvation ultimately depended upon you to keep it? How good a job would you do? What if you commit one too many sins? What if you don't obey the Ten Commandments enough? What if you're not spiritual enough? What if you do something so bad that you, you step out of God's love? You can't entrust your salvation to yourself. It's an impossibility. God has to hold you in his grip. So when you give your life to Jesus, when you give your life to Jesus, he takes your life and puts it in his hand. And then the father comes and puts his hand around Jesus' hand. So you're in two hands. Listen to how Jesus says it this way in John 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me, he's greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand because he is able to guard that which I've entrusted to him. Do you personally know Jesus? Not just about him. Not just some facts and figures in your head. Have you gotten to that point in your life where you've entrusted your entire life to Jesus and you say, Jesus, my life's not my own. I'm giving my life to you and I'm thoroughly convinced that you can guard it. You can keep it. You can save me. I can't save myself. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost. So here's the hope of Easter. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to continue to be enslaved to your sin. 
You can't save yourself no matter how hard you try. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins to save you to the uttermost. And the empty tomb proves once and for all that God means business. And he's serious about what he does to save you to the uttermost. So here's the point. What better day than Easter 2019 for every single person to walk out this place in their heart of hearts to say, I know whom I believed. I know Jesus. And I am thoroughly convinced that he is absolutely powerful enough to keep my life saved that I've given to him until that final day. Jesus can save me to the uttermost because there's an empty tomb. Would you put all of your trust in Jesus today and walk out of here with the hope of knowing that you have eternal life? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And would you just spend a few moments in silent prayer before the Lord, letting this message ring in your ear and nail some things down with Jesus about where you are with him and what you need to do this morning as you go to him in prayer. My prayer this morning, it really is my honest prayer, Lord. I've been praying this all morning. That every single one of us in this room would be able to walk out these doors with the confidence to know that you are powerful to save and that we know you personally, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. So, Father, what I'm asking this morning is that if there's anybody here that doesn't, today would be their day to cross that line of faith and to place all of their trust in Jesus, to give up living for themselves, to give up trying different things, to, to admit their sin, and to come to that point where they realize they're separated from a holy God and they can do nothing but simply entrust themselves, bank everything on Jesus Christ alone to save them. Thank you, Jesus, for the empty tomb. Thank you that you rose again. We have hope. We are not those that fear death. We are not those that uh, walk around uh, having to fear guilt or condemnation. We are those that walk around in the freedom to know that there's an empty tomb. Our sins are forgiven. We have eternal life. May we enjoy the rest of this day and walk out of here with confidence. Walk out of here with hope. Walk out of here with, with peace and joy. Not defeated, but walking out here victorious because of the empty tomb. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.